Well, let's jump into our study today. I'm excited about this. The word Genesis means beginning or origin, and it is indeed the perfect title for the incredible book we're beginning to study today. It details the origin of the universe, of you and I, the human race, of good and evil in the world, and even more. Yet it does not detail the origin of one thing, God. And for a good reason, he has no beginning. He is quite simply eternal, a concept itself which transcends the very limits of our comprehension. I think he also feels no need to share his origins because the word of God is essentially his autobiography, the story of his work among the human race. And when you're reading someone's autobiography, they don't take chapters to present the evidence for their existence. The idea is that the very evidence is being held in your hand and as we read the word of God, the word of God itself is evidence for his existence. The way it's structured, the prophecies contained within it, the wisdom contained within it clearly reveal a supernatural origin for the word of God. Genesis is the first book of the Torah, also sometimes referred to by its Greek name, the Pentateuch. The Torah or Pentateuch refers to the first five books of the Bible which were authored by Moses. Now you may have heard a school of thought that began over a century ago and persists today in certain academic circles. Those who say that Moses did not author the Torah and especially not the book of Genesis. Now those who hold that belief today do so with the same problems those who began this theory over 100 years ago had, namely that there is absolutely no evidence and only pure speculation for this belief. Without getting into all of the details, I'm gonna save you an enormous amount of time and boring research that you probably weren't gonna do anyway by reminding you that the reason we believe Moses wrote the Torah is because Jesus believed that Moses wrote the Torah. Jesus referred to portions of scripture found in the Torah on many occasions, and on each of them he attributed their authorship to Moses. Additionally, other people and the disciples did the same thing when conversing with Jesus, and Jesus never once said, oh right, that reminds me, big issue I want to clear up while I'm here on the earth, Moses didn't really write the Torah. That never happened. For example, in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. You remember that? That's right, every pastor has been saying it wrong. I looked it up, it's Emmaus. They don't recognize him, you might recall the story, and they talk to him about the hottest news that is pulsing through the city of Jerusalem, namely that Jesus of Nazareth has been killed. And so, without revealing himself to them yet, Jesus proceeds to lead these two men in a Bible study. And in Luke 24, 27, we read this. It's on your outlines. It says, and beginning at Moses, I want you to underline beginning at Moses, and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, expounded to them in all, underline all, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus gave these guys a Bible study about the Messiah, the Christ, the promised Savior of the world, and how what we refer to as the Old Testament prophesied is coming. And Luke 24, 27 tells us that Jesus covered, quote, all 
the scriptures that spoke about him. And he began with Moses. Now, when it says Moses, it's not talking about the life of Moses. It's talking about the books authored by Moses. That's why it says Moses and the prophets. Now, we'll study this more when we get to Genesis 3.15. But Genesis 3.15, you may recall, is the proto-evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures, the very first promise of a Messiah. So we know that Jesus would have covered Genesis 3.15 in this Bible study. We know that based upon this verse in Luke. And who does Jesus attribute the first prophecies about himself to? Who does he say authored them? Quote, Moses. Moses. As always, when two views collide, and one of those views makes Jesus to be either ignorant or a liar... Our personal bent here at New Hope is to go with the view that doesn't make out Jesus to be ignorant or a liar. That's just the way we lean here. Why? Our logic is simple. Jesus proved that he was God by rising from the dead. So Jesus knows who wrote the Torah, and therefore we believe Jesus when he says Moses wrote the Torah. And if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you got way bigger issues than who wrote the book of Genesis. And if you'd like to know why we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you should check out the last two messages in our recent series called Why Should I Believe Anything the Gospels Say About Jesus, where we discuss the evidence for the resurrection. You can find that on the website at mynewhope.ca. While science and philosophy diverge in purpose and focus, they begin with the same first question. That is to say, the question that science most desperately needs to answer is the same question that philosophy most desperately needs to answer. The question is simply this. Why is there something instead of nothing? Put another way, why does anything exist? Write that down. Both science and philosophy have the same first question, which is, why does anything exist? When science asks why, it is referring to the issue of causality. What caused the universe? When philosophy asks why, it is referring to the issue of purpose. Not just what caused the universe, but what is the reason for the universe? What is the meaning of the universe? Genesis 1-1 addresses the scientific issue of causality directly and simply. It famously reads, in the beginning, God, underline the word God, created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. The issue of causality is not a contentious issue. We all believe it. We all understand it. We all take actions every single day based upon our rock-solid trust in the concept of causality. None of us live in fear of being trampled to death by a herd of elephants that spontaneously materializes in our living room. Why? Because we understand and believe in causality. We know that things in the physical universe don't simply just happen. They have a cause. In fact, science tells us that anything that begins to exist must have a cause. It's not just my opinion, it's the law. Keeping it simple, we all agree that the universe exists. 
Therefore, the universe must have a cause. This simple progression of two factual statements and a conclusion is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. Go ahead and write that down. The Kalam cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And at this point, I wanna show you guys a quick video about this. If you would, just direct your attention to the screen and we'll pick up the message in just a couple of minutes. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. 
any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Science tells us that the universe is expanding. And the second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe is in entropy. That means the universe is decaying, it's moving from order to disorder and running out of energy. If the universe is expanding, what that means is that if you went back far enough in time, you would ultimately arrive at a single point where the universe began. And if the universe is in entropy, then that means that the energy in the universe is finite. It's not unlimited. And if the energy in the universe is finite and the energy in the universe is decreasing, as they said in the video, the universe would have run out of energy by now if it was indeed eternal. If the universe is eternal, it doesn't matter how slowly it's running out of energy because eternity would give you however much time you need in the past for that energy to run out. So if the universe was eternal, none of us would be here, nothing would be here because there would be no energy in the universe. Both of these pieces of scientific evidence make it clear that the universe had an absolute beginning, a genesis at a central point in time. So make a note of this. The observable expansion of the universe and second law of thermodynamics reveal a universe with an absolute beginning, an absolute beginning. Our universe came into being completely absent of ingredients. You see, science hasn't proven that only planets and stars had a beginning. Science has proven that everything, even matter itself, had a beginning. The atom had a beginning. I don't know about you, but when you imagine the Big Bang, I realized this about myself the other day, we tend to imagine the Big Bang as an event that happened in the void of space, a blank canvas upon which a picture suddenly appeared. But here's the thing, there was no space. There was no canvas, there was no paint, there was no easel, there was absolute nothingness. The very dimensions in which the event happened did not exist before it happened. Absolute nothingness. We don't even have a word for it because there's no descriptors for absolute nothingness. It all had a beginning. And that matters, that's a science pun, because it means that the cause of the universe must be independent of everything that we find in the universe. In other words, whatever caused the universe must not need anything that is found in the universe because it created the universe without any of those things. The cause of the universe must be beyond the space-time universe. We're talking about something spaceless, something timeless, something immaterial, something uncaused itself, and unimaginably powerful. Write this down. 
Because the universe was created from nothing, its creator cannot be dependent upon anything found in the universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. If we're willing to be reasonable, we have to concede that if anything fits that resume, it would be worthy of being described as God. And that's exactly what we see, a God being the most reasonable explanation for the universe. Now, I want to be clear. The Kalam cosmological argument does not address the issue of who this God is specifically. It simply points out that because the universe exists and it has a beginning, the universe has to therefore have a cause. And a creator, a God, a deity, is the only reasonable explanation. The Kalam cosmological argument is an argument for theism, for the existence of God. As Christians, we believe that God came to the earth in the form of Jesus the man and rose from the dead to prove that he was the same God who created the universe. And if you want to know why we believe that, it's for the same reason we believe that the universe was created by God. It's the most reasonable explanation for all of the evidence. Not only do we have to explain the cause of anything existing, we have to account for what exists, the characteristics of what exists. Specifically, we have to account for the fact that our universe is what scientists call fine-tuned. It is fine-tuned for life. Examples of fine-tuning are found everywhere around the world and in the universe around us. Just spend some time researching on YouTube human DNA the binary coding that is found in a single DNA strand, and just the simple philosophical truth that you cannot have code without a coder. You cannot have information that arrives from chaos. Spend some time researching the complexity of the human eye. And on and on and on we could go. There's no shortage of examples. This reality is summed up by what's known as the teleological argument. Write that down. The teleological argument or the fine-tuning argument. It goes something like this. It's on your outlines. If something contains evidence, strong evidence of being designed, it must have a designer. The universe contains strong evidence of being designed. Therefore, the universe must have a designer. Now... The materialist and the naturalist will often counter this argument, and you may have heard this or seen this online, by saying something like, but the universe contains all kinds of examples of chaos, black holes and stars imploding and exploding, hurricanes and natural disasters on the earth, cancer and other diseases. How can you say that the world and the universe are fine-tuned and have a designer? Firstly, Christianity and the Bible accounts for the existence of all of those chaotic things. The Bible clearly explains the cause, and we're going to address it in the first few chapters of Genesis in the next few weeks. But secondly, and most importantly, that argument completely misses the point. You see, the second law of thermodynamics tells us that objects in a closed system, like the universe, move from order to disorder. And the only way to reverse that trend is to add energy to the equation, which is impossible to do. Which is a problem because science also tells us 
There's a finite amount of energy in the universe. Energy can be transferred. It cannot be created from nothing. And that same second law of thermodynamics tells us that finite amount of energy in the universe is decreasing. Now, if you're honest, I understand you might be like, that's great, I'm just gonna smile and nod. You just keep going, Jeff. But let me put it this way, and I'll explain why that all matters. This is the point. The presence of elements of chaos in our world and in the universe is explained by the second law of thermodynamics. The universe is an entropy. We know why those things happen. However, the presence of any type of order and design and fine-tuning cannot be explained by any scientific law or principle. In other words, science explains the presence of chaotic elements in the universe, but it cannot and completely fails to account for the presence of elements of order and design in the universe. The Big Bang, here's what we, we miss. The Big Bang was a one-shot deal. If it happened and it didn't work, it wasn't just going to happen again. It was a one-shot deal of total chaos, an absolute explosion of more energy than exists in the universe today. All of it in one go. And the mystery is how design and order came out of that chaos. That's the mystery. It doesn't matter how many examples of chaos you can find in the universe. They're not the mystery. The mystery is why is there any order and any appearance of design that has arrived from chaos? That's the mystery. So if anyone disproves any example we might present of design in nature or fine-tuning in the universe, they haven't broken the case for God. There are still billions and billions of examples that need to be accounted for. Anyone who claims that the universe is not marked with the fingerprints of a designer is ignoring the empirical, observable, scientific evidence. Write this down. The scientific mystery is not the examples of chaos and disorder, but the inexplicable examples of design and order that are found in the universe. The mystery isn't why is there chaos, the mystery is why is there any order at all? At this point I'm gonna show you guys our second video clip of the day which breaks down some of the fine tuning of the universe. Let's watch this together. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. 
To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility 
of physical necessity or chance. The best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Science itself affirms an absolute beginning to the universe as well as the fact that the universe must therefore have a cause. And so what is the leading alternate theory to a creator God for the universe? An alternate cause. The video there mentioned it even though the visuals didn't line up. It's what's known as the multiverse. Most simply stated, the multiverse is a theory that a group of physicists have come up with. It's still being very much added to and adjusted all the time, but the core idea is this. To get around the absolute impossibility of our finely tuned universe existing, all the points we saw at the beginning of that video that, that seem impossible to just happen, those impossible odds, to get around that problem, physicists have posited that perhaps our universe is simply one of an infinite number of universes in existence that were all created by some sort of universe-generating machine or system. And because the multiverse creates infinite possibilities, one of those possibilities would inevitably result in a world that is fine-tuned for life like our own. That's the best I can do to summarize the core concept behind the theory of the multiverse. It was born out of the need that many in the scientific community have for a non-deistic, non-theistic explanation for the origins of the universe. In other words, there are many scientists and physicists who are naturalists or materialists. They believe only in the natural material world and naturally occurring scientifically observable processes. So when you look at the beginning of the universe, if you're a materialist or a naturalist, you're going to say, well, all the evidence may point to a creator God, but since there is no creator God, there has to be another explanation. That option, any supernatural option, is removed from the equation before you begin to come up with any theories. And that really is the reason the multiverse was invented and dreamed up. The idea of a creator God is in direct conflict with naturalism and materialism. That's why we have this idea. But the problems with the multiverse are both myriad and compelling. First of all, the multiverse is a theory to explain an event that is by definition beyond the reach of science in so much as it was not observed, it cannot be repeated, and so it cannot be scientifically measured. The appearance of everything from nothing means that there's nothing to evaluate other than the after effects of the event. 
In other words, science can observe the results of the Big Bang, but science cannot observe, measure, or recreate the Big Bang itself. It's already by definition an event that would be unscientific according to the definition of many. Anyone who says, well, I don't believe in anything that's non-scientific, anything that can't be reproduced in a lab, how about the Big Bang? I mean, we're all here, we all know that. Science recognizes it happened, you can't reproduce it. Even on the smallest scale, you cannot make anything appear from nothing. It's not a repeatable event. Secondly, the multiverse is entirely theoretical. And let me be clear about this. There's no scientific evidence whatsoever for the existence of the multiverse. It's entirely theoretical. It can't be detected, observed, measured, proved, or recreated in a lab on any scale. Most of us don't realize how much of physics is completely theoretical. I've heard physicists described as the poets of the sciences because theoretical physics is just that. It's theoretical. It is their job to use their intellect and their knowledge to dream up possible explanations for enormous scientific problems and then examine those ideas to see if they pass muster. And I mean all of that as a compliment, not as an insult. Imagination is incredibly important when it comes to solving mysteries. Physics is incredibly important. The danger is not in the physicists or in their ideas. The danger is in everybody else failing to adequately evaluate theoretical physics theories. Especially in the internet age, news will fly out, you've probably seen this before, that scientists have discovered something new in the field of physics or quantum physics. When in reality what's happened is that a physicist has proposed a new theory and even the physicist wouldn't claim that this is a scientific fact. It's a new theory, it's a new idea for the scientific community to evaluate. And so I'll say it again, the multiverse is entirely theoretical. Thirdly, and this is interesting to me, did you know there is no precedent anywhere in the universe for anything infinite? There is nothing in the universe that is infinite or has ever been infinite. Science tells us that the universe itself is not infinite. An amazing discovery. The universe doesn't go on forever. It has an end. Science tells us that matter and energy are finite in the universe and that energy is actually in decay. The very concept of something infinite is entirely outside the realm of scientific precedent. It's never happened. It's never been observed. Additionally, infinity is not a magical concept that makes anything possible. Some things have a possibility and probability that is so low, it is best expressed as zero, impossibility. The multiverse tries to explain away the absolute statistical impossibility of our existence by throwing in the idea of infinite possibilities. However, in order for the multiverse to be real, there would have to be a ludicrous number of universes in existence before one of them got it right, just based on those fine-tuning factors that we saw in that video. And if that number of universes that would need to be in existence were not impossible enough, we would have to deal with the statistical impossibility that the multiverse itself would need to be ludicrously fine-tuned in order to create a fine-tuned universe. And what in the world would those odds be? The odds of our fine-tuned universe multiplied 
by the impossible odds that a multiverse exists and it exists in such a fine-tuned way that it can create a fine-tuned universe. At a certain point, the numbers and probabilities are best expressed as zero. Not one in a trillion, 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 just zero. At a certain point, it becomes so ridiculous. Which leads us to the fourth problem with the multiverse. Where did it come from? Even if it existed, you would still have to explain what caused the multiverse and what caused it to be so finely tuned. Are we supposed to then believe that there is a multiverse generating multiverse? A machine that generates machines which generate machines on an infinite scale and eventually one of those multiverse machines would be so finely tuned that it could create a... You can just go on forever. This problem is known as infinite regress. It means that no matter how far back you go, no matter how much time you pass through, how many dimensions you cross over, you're still left with a beginning point for the universe and the only explanation of a super intelligence that could create a finely tuned universe. It doesn't matter how far back you go. I heard Stephen Hawking say, oh, you know what? We've solved the problem of a universe coming into being from nothing. This is about five years ago. Scientific community went nuts for it. He said, the problem of the Big Bang happening is solved by the fact that there is the law of gravity. And I can't help thinking, even a child, an eight-year-old could figure out the logical question of, you still haven't accounted for the existence of the law of gravity. Where did it come from? It doesn't matter what sort of reductionism you apply to the equation, how far back you go, how many ingredients you add to the mixture to cloud the waters, you are left with the problem of infinite regress. You have to explain the beginning wherever you go with your argument. So write this down. Any alternative explanation for the cause of the universe, like the multiverse, must solve the problem of infinite regress. And even if someone says, well, Multiverse does that, you know, somewhere back there in a way we can't explain yet, but we will observe one day, I have faith, is an explanation. Here's the thing, if you're truly willing to believe that there is an eternal dimension that we can't see in which an uncaused eternal machine exists that generates universes from nothing, if that's what you genuinely believe, then you're a person of far greater faith than me, willing to take something with absolutely no evidence, which is something I'm not willing to do. You would be the one making the greater leap of faith than the Christian. And based on the evidence, you would be the one ignoring the most reasonable explanation. There is an infinitely greater amount of evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus than there is for the multiverse. That's not my opinion, that's verifiable historical fact. There is more historical evidence in existence today for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the existence of the multiverse. Quite frankly, the only reason you've heard of the multiverse is because it's the best explanation we've been able to come up with for why the universe exists other than God. And, and quite frankly, it's so ridiculous in my opinion, the very fact that the multiverse is the leading alternate explanation to God for the existence of the universe really serves as a testimony to just how difficult it is to explain how we got here if you don't include God in the equation. 
Lee Strobel, a, a former devout atheist whose journey to faith is documented in the best-selling book, The Case for Christ, said it like this. This is on your outlines. To continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. I simply don't have that much faith. Isaac Newton was born in 1642 and he transformed the maths and the physics arenas. He co-discovered calculus. He discovered the principles of motion and gravitation that form the basis of most of modern physics and engineering. Even the great advances of the 20th century in relativity and quantum mechanics were elaborations on Newtonian mechanics. Isaac Newton is considered, quite frankly, to be the greatest scientific mind who's ever lived. Some atheists have implicitly tried to claim Newton as their own, but they woefully misunderstand who he was as a person and the age of the scientific enlightenment. Newton, like virtually all of the fathers of modern science, was a passionate Christian. Now, he was unorthodox. His beliefs were a little bit out there, best described as non-Trinitarian monotheism, closer to deism. But he wrote, did you know this? Isaac Newton wrote more extensively about biblical prophecy and Christianity than he did about physics and math. And he believed that the harmony and mathematical beauty in nature were the design of the universe from the mind of God. He wrote, I put this on your outlines, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God or universal ruler. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, and absolutely perfect. Conversely, Newton held atheism in great disdain and said, opposition to godliness is atheism in profession and idolatry in practice. Atheism is so senseless and odious to mankind that it never had many professors. Give it 150 years, Isaac, you'd be amazed what can happen. Newton believed that the evidence for intelligent design in the universe was so obvious that it required willful ignorance to not see it. And so he had great disdain for atheism because he believed that it made someone incapable of being a good scientist because they were choosing to ignore so much empirical evidence in order to hold on to their philosophical viewpoint. Newton's position was shared by virtually all the great scientists of the past several centuries from Copernicus to Galileo to Kepler to Faraday, Pasteur, Maxwell, and Einstein. Shifting gears now. The Babylon Bee is a favorite indulgence of mine. If you don't know what it is, it's an online satirical news website that riffs on issues related to Christianity. And one of my favorite headlines from the Babylon Bee read, local man demands evidence for God besides entire universe. And another favorite was titled, atheist accepts multiverse theory of every possible universe except biblical one. And I'll read you a short paragraph from that article. It said, the ardent multiverse proponent went on to state that he readily accepts that a universe governed by Mr. T riding a cyborg ostrich is possible. Also one with floating flaming bears instead of stars, one that contains planets full of hairy toasters made out of grape-flavored pudding. 
I like to think that there's a universe where Richard Dawkins, a leading apologist, has 20 heads, waffles rain from the sky, covered in ice cream, and the only plant that grows is pot, and wiener dogs are the most socially progressive and advanced animal there is, he said with a cheerful glimmer in his eye. And also there are only ponies, no horses. When asked if this means that the universe outlined in the Bible might be one of these infinite possibilities, he scoffed and said, I am a scientist. I don't have the luxury of engaging in that kind of wishful thinking. Now, I don't share that because it's red meat for a church crowd, and I don't share that to make fun of anyone. I share those things because they hit on the same point that Isaac Newton wrote about, namely that the evidence for a creator and a designer of the universe is so compelling, so blatant, that a creator God is the most reasonable explanation and conclusion. And you have to want to willingly not see it in order to not see it. I raise this issue because in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes about the two pieces of evidence that God has given to every person for his existence. This is how people who've never heard the name Jesus will be judged by God one day. This is the answer to the question, what about the man in the jungle who's never heard the gospel? What are these two pieces of evidence? Write this down. It's the observable world and the universe around us and our inherent moral conscience. The observable world and universe around us and our inherent moral conscience. You see, pretty much everybody has the ability to look around them, to experience the world around them, to look at another person, to look at their own body, to gaze up at the stars at night and see the evidence for God in creation. And the Bible says that those who choose to do so and then conclude, no, there's no God, it's just randomness, or to respond by saying, I know, I'll carve an idol of a monkey and worship that as the God who made all of this. The Bible says those who do such things are choosing to willingly ignore the evidence that there is a God, a creator, and they'll be judged by God for it. The Bible also says that pretty much everybody's born with an innate sense of right and wrong. That's why wherever you go in the world, whenever you go in the world in history, there's never been a culture in which it was admired to kill a friend and steal their spouse. There are absolute moral truths that God has embedded into the spirit of every person. And we choose to either be led by those inherent moral truths or to violate them. In Romans 1, this is on your outlines, Paul writes about unrighteous men. And he says that they suppress, underline the word suppress, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the evidence for the God and the universe is so obvious you have to suppress it. You have to push it down and choose not to see it in order to ignore it. And it goes on and he says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Paul is saying that when we refuse to recognize the evidence for God that's all around us, we lose contact with God. God is the ultimate source of all truth. 
And so when you disconnect yourself from the source of all truth, the result is that you become incapable of thinking clearly. You become convinced that ridiculous ideas are in fact brilliant and that your foolishness is in fact genius. It's a terrifying thought. And then Paul gives us the example of many so-called brilliant men who ended up worshiping animals and idols instead of the true God. And when you move on to Romans 2, Paul writes about the inherent moral absolutes that each person is aware of internally. This is also on your outlines. He says, for when Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who do not have the law, they don't have the law of God that God gave the Israelites, by nature, underlined by nature, that means instinctively. So when non-Jews who've never heard the law of God instinctively do the things that are in the law, these things that they do, even though they don't have the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, and then underline their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So what that is just saying is that there are men who don't know God, who don't know his law, who inherently, instinctively know to do things that are in the law of God. And the reason is because of the conscience that God has put inside every person. And people who do the right thing, even though they've never been told to do the right thing, prove the conscience is there. So how do we know that God exists? What is the evidence? According to the Bible, which we believe is God himself speaking to us, the only two pieces of evidence that we need in order to know that God exists are the observable world and universe around us and our inherent moral conscience. We've talked about the universe and world around us, and next week we're gonna pick things up by looking at the moral argument for God, what Paul wrote about in Romans 2, that second piece of evidence that God himself considers irrefutable. And I really wanna encourage you to spend some time thinking and studying these two things because it's a powerful statement that God says, that's enough. That's enough for you to know that I exist. He doesn't say that's enough for you to know that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus said the resurrection proves that he's God. But that's it. The Bible says if you want evidence that God exists, look around you and look at your conscience. If you want evidence that Jesus is God, look at the resurrection. God considers those pieces of evidence to be sufficient evidence for anybody to find him and know who he is and get into heaven. He says that's enough. I'd love to go through all the other pieces of evidence for God in the universe, but we'd be here for weeks. It would be great fun, but other people have written some fantastic resources about that stuff already, and I've listed some of them at the end of your outlines. I encourage you to follow those ministries on Facebook and social media. It's a great way to get bite-sized chunks of this apologetic stuff on a near daily basis. So I'm gonna let them go through all the evidence for a creator God while we focus in on the two pieces of evidence that God's word highlights. It's been well said that if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you'll have no problem with the rest of the Bible. If you can believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you'll have no problem with the virgin birth, no problem with the miracle accounts at all. I always laugh when I read Genesis 1-1 because I imagine the person saying, okay, I'll give the Bible a try until it becomes unscientific. First verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's as though God said, let's just get right down to it. If you can't look around you and figure out that it's impossible that any of this just happened on its own, then you're so far 
from being anywhere close to being open to the truth that I want to share with you, you should probably just put the book down for now. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And while Genesis doesn't tell us anything about the origins of God, because he's eternal, the closest we get is actually found in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. I'd never seen this till this week, and I don't know why, but it blows my mind. The Gospel of John always does. Because Genesis 1.1 begins with in the beginning, and the Gospel of John begins with the words in the beginning. Gospel of John says in the beginning, you want to know about the origins of God? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Genesis 1-1 tells you there is a God, but the Gospels tell us who that God is. The Gospels tell us what he's like. He's life. He's light. He's Jesus. And the best news that we can have for anyone is not that there is a God. The best news we have to offer is that God is good. And we know who he is. He's loving and he's gracious. He's Jesus. And lastly, I just share, as we begin our 21 days of prayer today, don't forget how big your God is. Don't forget how powerful he is, and don't ever forget how amazing it is that when we pray, he listens. He listens. Unquestionably, the greatest mystery of all, in my opinion, is the love of God. The love of God transcends all understanding. I can't fathom why he loves us, but he does. And I'm so thankful to be an object and recipient of his love, and you are too. So pray with confidence. God is both willing and able to help. He's willing because he loves you. And he's able because he's God, the creator of heaven and earth out of absolutely nothing. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the revelation of your glory that you have put into nature, into the night sky, into the human eye, into our children, into those around us, everywhere we look, uh, we see evidence of your brilliance and your glory. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, God. And Father, I, I pray that as we pray to you, as we share our lives with you, that we would never reduce you down in size, that we would remember your scope and your breadth and the awesomeness of your power, God, that as we seek to, to fit you into some sort of box of our own being or to bring you down to a level where we can fathom and understand you that you would once again by your spirit just blow wide open our idea of who and what you are, that you're bigger, that you're more, that you're more beautiful, that you're greater, you're stronger, you're more loving. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. 
When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.